Hello, welcome to What Goes Around. My name is Eamon Murtagh. Hello, I'm Deb Grant. And in today's show, Deb terrifies me on the high seas via the medium of prog rock. And Eamon talks to Sean Eden of the Parquet Courts about the rigours of being in a touring band. And we say boom shanker to our very special guest indeed. Yes, it's Neil the Hippie himself, actor, writer, singer and erstwhile young one, Nigel Planer. Shall we pod? Let's pod. Lady Deb Grant, please tell me what goes round in your special world of radio. I will do, my hungover friend. Uh, I want to talk to you. In fact, this might not go down so well with your hangover, but uh, I want to talk to you about cruising. Because... What sort of cruising are we talking about? I wasn't that drunk, was I? <laughs> Keep your hair on. Cruising on, cruising on the sea, that kind of thing. Oh, uh, right. Okay. Because... Yeah, a few. <laughs> because... I got I get a lot of PR emails for bits yeah. and bobs. Mostly I sort of case them for for things I might be able to get for free. But I got a particularly good um, PR email come through a couple of weeks ago from a company all about a uh, a cruise. But the twist is that it's a cruise to the Bahamas mm? with the theme of prog rock. It's a prog rock Whoa. cruise. Whoa. Yeah. Actually, <laughs> let me remind myself who was playing on this prog rock cruise. And like there's photos on the website, um, all of like like proper prog fans. It's not just like middle-aged people who are no, like... Listen, oh, there, there's no middle ground. We say proper prog fans. There's no middle ground in prog, right? You're either a, a suede-wearing intellectual <laughs> who, who likes to think about the different tunings of a, of a telecaster or you're not. Do you know what well, I mean? Well, this is it. And obviously... You know, the, this cruise company have really hit on something because those types of people, I imagine, they quite enjoy being sort of held captive on a on a ship. <laughs> I think it's, a, it's the best place for them. <laughs> <laughs> but I think it sounds quite fun. The lineup, okay, let me tell yeah, you about this lineup. Marillion are playing. Oh, I'm horrified. Alan Parsons. <laughs> oh, Jesus. <laughs> the Zappa Band, Zappa Tribute Band. You've oh. got uh, all kinds of people I haven't heard of. With uh, Wishbone Ash are playing. Wishbone they're quite, Ash. They're quite far down the, down yeah. the uh, list, surprisingly. Um, but it's full on. If you look at the photos, it, this is a full on prog rock extravaganza. Oh. And uh, this is the thing, like I say, sometimes I, I write back to PR emails and I'm like, what, are you, what is this? Can I get this for free? But I just thought, like, <laughs> do, I, free, do I want to put myself through yeah, that? Yeah, am I up to this? I mean, from a people watching point of view, it would be absolutely fascinating. Oh, yeah. Um, but what an idea, a prog yeah. rock cruise. And I guess I was thinking about, you know, both of both you and I are into all different types of music. Mm. And I, I'm not sure if there's a genre that I would want to sail to the Bahamas with and just be trapped on a boat with fans of this specific genre. You know, I'm wondering yeah. what you think would go down well if there was a, a music cruise to be offered for like super hardcore mm. fans of a particular genre is there is there any particular genre that you would be you'd be open <laughs> for well, a two-week I mean, cruise to the bahamas <laughs> let, let me think uh i have to say so prog is kind of my um my uh my, my sort of kryptonite really is it uh, i that, never knew that yeah, don't no, tell steve I davis i never knew I know, that no, about it, you 
So I, I like, I really love psychedelia up to about 72, okay. right? And then, and, I, and then I really like punk and post-punk and all that stuff that comes after. But that little proggy section in the middle where everyone was just showing off. Yeah. I, 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 that, it, it leaves me cold. Like, so, I mean, listen, we're going to have to get someone on the show to come and big up prog and, and say why it's good. Because I know there is worth in a lot of it, but... Mm. It's also very worthy, and I can't bear that. Is that what you don't like? You don't like the fact that it's that it's showing off in your. That's your take on it. Oh, do you know, it, it just gets a bit overblown. I mean, you, you know, if, and you talk, if you talk to the people involved, like Rick Wakeman and that, you know, they'll, they'll be the first to admit it. I mean, this is a man who put a, a whole um, a stage play musical about. Camelot and King Arthur on ice while he played the organ. I mean, that sort of excess. And, you know, it's of course, what other uh, music could afford, and what other fans could afford to take a cruise to the Bahamas? I mean, it's, oh, I it's like middle... There's... Middle class hell. I mean, you'd be locked on a ship with people talking about yes. Oh god! It'd be I've terrible. never heard uh, there are deep roots of resentment going on here. I've never heard you get so. But I'm usually the one getting passionately angry know, at the drop I of know, a hat. I, I mean, I I try to like it, but I just find a lot of it really annoying. Just it, it's all too busy. There's too much going on. It's too it's too kind of clever for its own good. Mm. But yeah, listen, as, you know, for every there, there are great great prog bands out there you know King Crimson's and all that I don't, it's not like I hate all of it it's just I hate most of it you're backtracking now because you know we're going to get a lot of yeah uh, <laughs> basically a lot of hate that's right, that's right. I, I was working on getting someone to do something for uh, for the show about prog rock so I'll, I'll get back on that and see if we can get someone to change my mind make mm. me believe but like what sort of music I mean I've been on a few boat I actually hate boat parties I don't I, have you ever been on one uh no oh god it it, well, it, I don't like the idea, though. I you get know. locked in a room. Do you know yeah. you can't? You can't fucking leave. Yeah. I hate that idea. I don't mind like what sort of music it is, you know. But even if it's something I really, really, really love, I must be able to find the exit if I'm not mm. having a good time. Because sometimes it's not about the music or what's going. On. Sometimes it's just the atmosphere, or you get stuck with some boring guy going on about prog, and you just want you want to go home. Do you know what I mean? You want to get stand outside, get an Uber, and go home then and there. Now the idea of being in the middle of the ocean and someone saying, so have you ever um, considered the works of uh, Rick Wakeman? <laughs> no, I couldn't do it. I couldn't do it. Yeah, what? but on a cruise, you have your own little cabin. So it's like having your own little green is, room that you can just fuck off to. Is it soundproof? That's what I would have <laughs> <laughs> Well, that kind of goes against the whole idea of yeah. going on a Prague cruise, Amy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, I did go on a, a jungle boat party once, and that was... Um, Jesus Christ. <laughs> it, was, it was a little bit too hectic for... for being on the water because you know people were like jumping off the tables and going crazy and you know everyone was boggling around the place and I just thought this can't be safe on a boat <laughs> this, this is like this you know they, they were literally making waves I didn't I didn't enjoy it and again I just wanted to know I could step out and if you can't do that so I would never do the cruise thing mm. I think if I was you know if I was going to go to the Caribbean I mean you've got you've got to take in reggae that would be a thing but um I don't know I think um I think I'd like uh something it'd have to be chilled I couldn't go for anything really frenetic like uh like drum and bass or techno mm. or anything like that so I think maybe like an ambient cruise would be very nice do you know what I mean something yeah. where like you just got loads of chilled tunes but then again it might end up a bit like um like that place in Ibiza that everyone bores you about 
you know, the Café Del Mar. Oh, sure, yeah, yeah. Which I'm sure is fantastic. I've never been, uh, and I love loads of the music that gets played there, but all oh, people do go on about it. <laughs> yeah, I think my problem is, I've said this before when we had that big argument, which I won't dredge up again, about people who listen to music in the park on a summer's day, and then it turned out that you're one of those people. Yeah, yeah. I still think about that when I walk around the park. I thought about so it the I other day because I was going to bring, I was going to bring my little little thing out to, to a field nearby, and then I thought Deb would be looking at me with the, with her cross eyes. I'm so, glad. I'm so glad that you that you've taken that on board. I have. I, have. I um, do everything you say. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I mean, it's only because I'm right and sensible. I'm your most sensible. <laughs> but it's only because I'm right. Yeah, no comeback there. <laughs> but I, I think because I have trouble. Well, I have trouble listening to music passively, and also. I like the sounds of nature. And I think if I was on a cruise that was about music, I'd be like, when is the music finishing so I can listen to the sounds of the ocean lapping against the boat? I think it's a contradiction in terms for me. You know, you go on a cruise to to relax shortly. See, that's that's why the ambient thing had worked, you know, because like... That's still music, Amy. That's still music. But it'd be chilled. And when it did, it would just fade into the waves. It would just No, that's not... I want the pure ocean sounds. I don't want anything intruding (sighs) on my enjoyment of nature. So... I think we're in the same boat then, in that we're... Neither of us are going to get in the same boat. (laughs) (laughs) Whilst we all dream at one time or another about being in a band and travelling the world, the reality of that task is often underestimated. When you start off, no one picks you up in a limo and takes you to your rehearsals, no one carries your gear, and without being able to prove you can rock a crowd, no one's even going to give you that gig. The notion of being an overnight success is almost completely misleading. Bands need to play their local venues, then break through to the neighbouring towns, then take a long weekend to play to disinterested strangers far away, sleep in vans, and so on. Touring is essentially the bricks and mortar of a band's worth, and it takes a long time before you can turn that into your fantasy mansion. Sean Yaton of the brilliant US band The Parquet Courts has been walking this road for over a decade now, and as they prepare to tour the UK and play a headline show at the enormous Brixton Academy and the legendary Green Man Festival, we thought we'd take this opportunity to ask Sean about the reality of touring your way to the top. So, hello, Sean, and welcome to What Goes Around. Hi, Eamon. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to be here and talk about touring, honestly. <laughs> Great. I'm glad. We it's just probably wanna... the thing I know the most about. That's well, that's it. It takes up a lot of time if you're in a band, right? Yeah, and I mean, I've been doing it since I was like 17. I mean, I started touring so... Like, the first tour I ever went on was in a band that went, we went on our first tour, yeah, I think, of the east coast of the U.S. when I was like 16, like right when I got my license. Mm. I think I've just been doing it ever since. What were those first kind of gigs like for you? Were you did you go straight in like a, a well-oiled machine or did you uh, do the time-honored oh tradition of just slamming the bass and seeing what happens? <laughs> oh, my God, time-honored tradition all the way. I didn't even have a bass. I never even <laughs> played bass until this band. I had a full-time job when Parquet Courts started and, you know, the way it came together was through Andrews, the only person that had like a direct relation to each member of the band. We played shows at the beginning where we didn't even play uh, instruments. One time we had a bunch of paper and we just like painted stuff or like that was how we started. You know, like the whole concept of our band started initially as just kind of a like, 
improvised mm. punk band and we figured out like how to play together by not knowing what we were doing. When you get yourself together and you finally begin to find your feet as a band, one of the things that you then have to do, of course, is fly your nest and start moving out from the area that you know where I guess you feel comfortable drawing sketches on stage. Um, and you end up going, you know, to the neighbouring towns and neighbouring areas and further afield. I mean, how did how did that experience affect the band? You know, did, did you do you suddenly get a reality check at that stage? I suppose so. You know, so with this band, it's interesting because, you know, we were playing in New York a lot. We sort of went from the point where we were we had finished recording American Specialties. But the way that that record even got recorded was pretty weird. Like we didn't record it live together it felt like we were a band for a while before we started playing live mm. and then once we started playing live we made it kind of like our goal to play you know x amount of shows in new york per month and then like it got to the point where we were playing every weekend sometimes twice a weekend three times a weekend for like a year yeah i had like a full-time job everybody else had jobs like there was no real intention other than it being kind of like this extracurricular activity at first. Well, th those are the moments that I, I find really interesting because, you know, you join a band, ostensibly, you, everyone has a little daydream in the back of their head, but you join your band to have fun with your friends yeah. and, and make a racket, you know. And then yeah. there comes a stage, especially like you were talking about how you had a full-time job and all that. There must have come a stage where suddenly you were starting to play more gigs, maybe further out. And suddenly it became a thing where you're going to have to make that jump. You're going to have to work out whether whether you can get back to work on Monday or whether you're going to sleep in the van and carry on and go to the next town. You know, I mean, how did you yeah. how did you find that, that that shift? Man, it was just like I'm so grateful that it happened that whatever, however, the stars aligned at the time, because, you know, had it even been a couple of years later. It would just not have been the kind of risk I'd have been willing to take. And look, I'm like a pretty like spontaneous person. I love a good time. I would like, you know, prefer being able to have a life that I look back on with fond memories, even the ones that were at the time, like absolutely fucking crazy. And so many of them are tour related. Most of them. Kansas City, Missouri. We stayed at a house that was like that I've like forever changed by. Like I watched like a cat throw up in somebody's mouth. <laughs> and, um, <laughs> I would dude, change, I'm, man. Yeah, I can see. I that. mean, it's not even like it was necessarily the first time I'd seen, or was maybe not the last time I would see something like that. But it was like you know, ninja stars in the walls. Yeah. I mean, I've lived in punk houses. We, I used to only ever play in the basements of punk houses. But there's something about like the post 2012 apocalypse didn't happen punk house that is just like wild. Because they were already prepared for the apocalypse, you know, so they're just like making veggie dogs on burning plastic and shit. By the end of that tour, you know, I'd used, it was a 10 day tour. We were in, only Max and I have licenses in the band still to this day. So it's just me and Max doing these drives in a van where you had to like, it was like a Flintstones car. Like you could see the highway under your feet when you were driving. <laughs> and uh, you had to have the wheel at like a, if you wanted to go straight, you had to have the wheel like you were taking a sharp right turn. It was mm. unbelievable. <laughs> and um, and we just did it. You know, there's like no seatbelts. Horrible. We did that tour. And I used all of my vacation, like my, you know, year of vacation plus sick days and mental health days or whatever, thinking like, oh, that'll be cool. Like fun little tour or whatever. And then by the time we got back, it was like all of, uh, a bunch of our songs were on Pitchfork for like best new music and all this. Yeah. And the next thing I know, I'm like, I'm looking at like a, google spreadsheet because we had suddenly been offered 
all these shows in Europe and mm. the States. And it was like the dream. It was unbelievable. Like all of a sudden it'd be like, it was like sitting at a slot machine for like a whole day. Right. And like every time you crank the thing, you get like a couple quarters here, whatever, some money, like nothing crazy significant. And then like, just as you're about to leave and be like, ah, whatever, you put like one more in and pull it and you win like a Ferrari. Yeah. It was like, like out of nowhere. It was like, it went from being like, Oh my God. Like we just got like so many show offers that if we just say yes to all of them, then like, we don't have to like, struggle to try to book shows for what looks like the next like nine to 12 months so we just like blindly agreed to it <laughs> and then we quit our jobs and we've never been the same since like i'm still thinking about how crazy some of that shit was like we would <laughs> fly like discount flights and stuff where like we it was it cost uh less money for us to like buy plane tickets for our guitars and give them their own seats <laughs> than to like check them we traveled the world with Whoa. like a plastic box of our stuff in it. We like had such a little, such like so little understanding of how to do what we do now mm. that we, by the end of that first tour, that was like a year long forever, like changing the map of our minds and like the way that we view the world. We had been carrying around like a winter hat with money like currencies from everywhere you know euros fucking u.s dollars god knows what and it just got stolen the last night of the tour oh. like we just were like wow what happened we did it all and then it just got taken away oh it just seems like so obvious that like to me i was like oh, i guess we can't be mad about it but we're definitely breaking up right like that's crazy we didn't. We still do it to this day. This is the thing. That so once you you know you you you've made that that sort of mental leap as much as anything you know to to say well yeah. we're going to do it now you know it's possible and then the reality of touring I think a lot of people when they people who haven't been in a band certainly they kind of think of touring as like a a really lovely cruise where you just kind of yeah, roll up into one is. town or the other and you have a nice hotel and all this sort of stuff. But the reality of it, it's really, really insanely hard work. Just keeping awake and, you know, keeping yourself fed and all this. Uh -huh. What sort of things do you, do you... There's always a few little things that you end up doing to keep your own sanity together. Was it, Were there any little little things that you as a group, like, tried to make sure happen? It's like, I don't know, it's like anything, right? Like, we're basically this bro the, these brothers. At this point now, it's crazy to me to think that we there was a point in this band where we didn't have or manager like i have no idea how the fuck we got anything done because mm. like we the first time we ever worked with a tour manager i remember it being and a manager like all the parts of the music industry that are like what separates like the diy ethics of like where i feel like my initial love for like playing live music was born same with andrew you know and like knowing that I like I've been in bands that have booked their own tours. I've toured Europe and Australia without ever having a booking agent or whatever. Mm. You know, I had to lie to get into the countries. <laughs> I could have gotten in a lot of trouble, but I still did it. So to me, I always was like hesitant about it. I was like, why do you need a? Why would we need a tour manager? Like, what do they do? They just drive, or like blah, blah. But I tell you, after having a couple like Tony Soprano style like driving panic attacks or whatever, I, and so there is a lot of like mental health 
stuff that goes yeah, on. I mean, the thing about it, it's like it's a serious like strain, you... isn't it? It's a serious strain when you're away from everyone yeah. you know and you're you're tired and you're hungry and you're you're having to give it out every night when you're going on the stage. It's not it's not a holiday, really, is it? No wonder a lot of bands really fall out with each other. I'm amazed to say that like that's not really been an issue for us, <laughs> but like uh. Because who was I just hearing a crazy story about? Was it, oh, Sting or the police, right? Like the drummer for the police mm, hated Sting so much that by the end of the police, he would have his drums set up in such a way that the cymbals would block him from being able to see Sting at all. <laughs> Shit like that is crazy. Getting to the point where you're like, well, you, you can hate Sting all you want, but if you don't keep playing drums with Sting, then you're not going to be rich anymore. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And like <laughs> the thing too, like you were saying about the people have this impression that being in a touring band is like, it's a holiday. And I still deal with that all the time. I mean, that's easily the most frustrating part of the whole thing is then that like, I'll be the first to admit, like I'm grateful every day of my life that like somehow incredibly, I actually can say that I'm doing the thing that I said I wanted to do since I was like eight years old. Mm. Like that is amazing to me. And I don't take it for granted it granted ever at all. But like, it sucks when you're like out there and losing your mind, losing sleep, barely getting through it, getting sick and having to do it anyway. Mm. Like dealing with like missing flights, getting lost in Rome, being so like overwhelmed that your like body starts to shut down. And then people being like, oh my God, so is it just like the most fun? Like, were you like, did you see like the Eiffel Tower? And I was like, I'll tell you what, I've been to France. I've been to Paris six times this year and I've not seen the Eiffel Tower once because there's no Eiffel Tower where we go. We get driven to a place that has stuff in it and then we play the music and then we get driven away. People will see like, oh my God, like you're playing like Barcelona and the tour. And I'm like, yeah, we're playing in Barcelona, but like, I'm not going around like eating tapas and like yeah. getting like the Foders tour. I'm not going to get to go see the sites unless their sites are like <laughs> a uh, shell services, you know, <laughs> some like, garage not, on the side of the road. That's where, yeah, that's where your not, sites are. Exactly. And I hate to complain about, I'm not complaining about it. It's just that it, it's never possible to articulate it to anyone who doesn't do it as their job. Mm. And it's funny because I think that like, talking to other bands on tour well like you know whenever you line up with another group and be like on the same kind of like touring cycle as them so you like bump into them at the same festivals you almost like it really does feel what i can what i think is like most like a traveling like carnival or something you mm. know i think that like the things that become your creature comforts are like deciding to like be for uh like a regional sports team and like have a consistency like you know like having like regional food or stuff like stuff that's like specific and special that mm. like because we're only in a spot for 10 hours it's like oh we're gonna be in porto we have to get those sandwiches that are like in soup or whatever yeah <laughs> that's, it's like that's the sort of thing i'm talking about those, those little things that keep your brain together and make it all dealable with you have so few moments that you can kind of escape and try to find like some peace for yourself that those little moments like whether it's like falafel or yeah surfing in a river those are like the things you look forward to here's the thing you know you've been with the band now for over 12 years must be 12 12 
15 years, something like that. Um, oh, shit, yeah, I guess so. Oh, my God. Yeah, so it's a long time, you know. But do you, does it still feel, at the end of the day, when you get on the stage, I mean, does that still have the same kind of release for you? Do you still feel like that makes it all worthwhile at the end of every day? It's the best feeling mm. in the world. It's 90 minutes of the greatest feeling I've ever had. And I wouldn't give it up for anything. I wish it was, like, 20 minutes longer, even. Maybe even longer than that. I mean, I'll tell you, I... And like, this is gonna maybe even sound kind of corny. I love doing this so much. And I love that I found an instrument that I used to think was like a joke. Mm. Honestly, I was like a very pretentious guitar player who was like, four strings are for like people who suck or whatever. Like I had no idea the like importance of this instrument. And um, I've had such a like, wonderful time just like learning that it, it like, it's been like a karate kid like montage for me with this instrument and playing this music with my like closest. I mean, these people are like, they're not even like friends. They're like part of me, they're like part of my DNA. Mm. And like, we know, like we're always, we're one thing kind of. And um, I've been like sick, to, like so sick that I'm like certain there's no way I could play a show. I've had like body aches that are so intense. I've feared that by playing, I would like paralyze myself or something. Mm. And as soon as I step out there on that goddamn stage, I just don't feel any of those things anymore. And it's like the best. I just feel like the most, like who I am at an actual like present moment. It's the best. Even when it sucks, it's good, you know. <laughs> That's, that is wonderful to hear, I've got to say. What a lovely thing. And I'm sure, you know, the, the fans who come and see you around the world, that this is, it's, it's that kind of uh, deep joy that you find, that release that you find in, in playing the music to them. That's why it's worth coming to see. And I'm sure everyone here in England and across Europe, because you're, you're doing the whole stretch, aren't you? Yeah. They're all going to get their get their money's worth. And um, we really look forward to having you in the UK. And you're playing Manchester and uh, London Brixton Academy. And I believe you're headlining the legendary Green Man Festival as well. Oh, it? going to be so much fun are you going to come to any of these things I mean, you think? well i've recently moved to bristol so i'm not that far from green man so i might I oh might you've see... got to come hang out buddy we'll have like that cool like tree house in the back we can have some yeah whatever you can ask <laughs> for something whatever you want on the rider we can get you your favorite thing sweet i'll get my podcast flag on and see what i can get you <laughs> i love it you let me know if you need any help that's <laughs> the only two things that i've been able to become universally good at like because of being in a touring band are i'm really good at packing all my family's crap up for like a vacation <laughs> in the car. I got yeah. excellent at like the van Tetris thing. And then um, I can, you know, get people into a show. Yeah. That's like the only two things I can do. I'm going to be worrying your inbox very shortly. Thank you so much for talking to us today, Sean. It's been really Thank great. Thank you, Amy. It's been an honor. I really enjoyed it. And it's great to hear somebody who still has so much love for music after all the I, work oh they God. put More in. every day.
Guest is a celebrated actor, writer, musician, Brit Award winner, and former gravedigger, not to mention a founding member of the comic strip who pioneered the UK alternative comedy scene of the 1980s. He has starred in hit musicals such as Wicked and We Will Rock You, written extensively for theatre, including creating the spoof actor character Nicholas Craig, written countless books as well, including a new one called Jeremiah Born in Time. But he is likely best known as the fretful, lovable hippie Neil in that jewel of the British comedy scene, The Young Ones, which led him to score a number two hit with Hole in My Shoe in 1984. Today, we are thrilled to have him with us, sharing his phonographic memories, including one of his own original compositions. Welcome to the podcast, Nigel Planer. Hello, hello. How are you today? <laughs> Very well. How are you doing? Yeah, not bad. Not, not at all bad, considering... <laughs> yeah. quite, I mean, it's quite depressing, isn't it, being, you know, shut in again. I know they haven't done it officially, but nevertheless, it feels yeah. that way. But you've um, had a you've had a pretty pretty uh, uh, prolific um, couple of years in terms of your creative output. Doesn't seem to have stalled you. You've got a lot going on creatively at the moment. In a way, more than more than usual, because normally I would be filming or doing theatre or, or doing more acting. Normally, I've, my time, creative time, is, is taken up more than it has been in the last couple of years. Mm-hmm. So I've got on with writing a book and starting a, my Bandcamp channel and writing a play which went on tour uh, last summer. And, yeah, generally it's been... I've, I've had kind of more time than normal to get down to doing the uh, creative work. So yeah. It's been... It's been I tough. hate to be one of those smuggies... <laughs> Yeah. So, oh, I had a good. I, had a good pandemic. <laughs> I hate that, but um, I was really lucky. I'm old enough that I get a pension now, and so it, it wasn't too bad. It's good that you managed to to get some things done. I have to say, I taught myself to cook a curry while during, during the lockdown, oh, that's and that's as the limit of my exploits. It hasn't made me rich or famous, but it has kept me fed, which is a good thing. <laughs> Yeah. It's the eating that's the problem for me. <laughs> the quality of the <laughs> cooking, not so much. The uh, the eating has uh, has gone up quite a bit. But I'm curious because we, we have um, your, your third phonographic memory pick, which we'll get to, is is uh, one of your own compositions, like you say, that you've released on your band camp. But let's wind the clock back a bit because I'm curious about, or we're curious about your, your musical upbringing. How did music first appear in your life and what, what were you into and did you come from a musical household? I kind of did, although it was it, it, music was uh, creatively kind of dead for, in the beginning years. My dad was a violinist. He was uh, Romanian and he played violin to a very high standard, but when he got naturalised to become British, he gave up the violin and never played it again. 
So by the time I was born, the violin was a little uh, a case, a sort of mysterious case at the top of his cupboard, which I used to take out and break, you know, break the strings, <laughs> try to play. And he could never be persuaded to play. And I believe my mum was also a very high, you know, she got grade whatever in piano. But again, she had given that up. I think when they got together, they, you know, he, he got a PhD in chemistry, became a, a scientist and businessman. And um, my mum was a speech therapist. And so their musical, the background kind of faded away. The, you know, so it, we weren't very musical. The only thing I really remember is my dad had a massive radio, <laughs> which he would lie on his bed, on his stomach, with a, with a very big long aerial and try and find Eastern European radio stations. Mm. So there was a lot of um, strange time sequences, Turkish, anything sort of peculiar. That, that, that's what kind of got infiltrated into us. When I say us, mm. I mean myself and my younger brother. He's a proper musician. I'm not. I think at one point he even went to the Purcell School. Wow. He's one of those people who could play most things and was one of the first people to get a Fairlight computer. Oh, really? And he's a producer now. We used to write songs together, me and him. Mm. He taught me guitar early on. I had lessons in flamenco guitar. Wow. Um, which was a, a, a big deal because I was mad about flamenco music this is going back when i was a, a kid I, and mm. i don't know why i don't know why maybe it's these radio stations seeping into your head <laughs> yeah yeah and segovia the classical spanish mm. guitar that really turned me on and mm. so i pestered and was bought a tatai flamenco guitar which at the time was 17 quid it was a big deal i had a few lessons and just totally got bored <laughs> trying to do things, you know, as I'm, I'm very, uh, I'm not, you know, follow through, especially mm. at that age, especially younger, no good. And so I, I sort of very tearfully gave up the flamenco guitar, but I kept the guitar and started learning to play it like folk and pop music, yeah. which my dad hated. <laughs> So it turned into a kind of teenage rebellion with me and my brother to make this music. That went into songwriting. And I wrote, we even had a, a, a manager at one point. We, we used to go around EMI and record companies because you, you couldn't just make a file and digitally send it. Mm. So you'd have to make a cassette or something or even go and sit in their office and sing and, and play. <laughs> but we never really got very far with that. And so I heard on writing songs, uh, sort of Nick-Drake-influenced songs, nice. really. Yeah. Um, Incredible String Band, were my, my brother oh, lovely, was yeah. a big fan of them, and we used to go and see them when they played. And I, but I was more, ja more jazz-oriented. I went mm. to see Soft Machine. How nice. Oh, yeah. It was difficult finding mates to go to the kind of music I like to listen to, so I used to go on my own. Um, really? So was it that uh, was it that unconventional? I mean, it, like you know, you're you're surely soft machine and bands like that were. Actually, it's pretty far out stuff, time. though, when you think about it. I mean, Robert Wyatt, his voice, you yeah. know, his uh, version of Shipbuilding, 
Yeah, yeah perfection. Just yeah. incredible, yes. And his his little voice, I'm a dilemma between what I am and what I just want. You know, little Cockney voice. This is pre-David Bowie. If you wanted to be a bloke, you had to have long hair and kind of sing like Robert Plant. You had to mm. sort of say, hey, I'm, I'm sex. Um, <laughs> and anything... You know, jazz, Nucleus I used to go and listen oh, to. Oh, I love Ian Nucleus. Carr, the trumpet player. Yeah. And anything like that wasn't, was a sort of guilty secret. It's um, funny how stuff like that emerges now as sort of the height of cool. Yeah, you'd be you know. hip now, you'd be a hipster. Yeah, it yeah, would be total, yeah. totally hipster stuff. Anyway, that's that was sort of it. And I wrote these songs and we, we didn't get very far with them. Then I, I dropped out of university. Everything kind of fell apart a bit. And... Just during the lockdown, I found my old guitar, which has been used in all sorts of gigs, and got kicked in, and the side of it was broken. And st- I just remembered all the songs I'd written when I was sort of 18. We're talking mm-hmm. 1971, 2, 3. And they, they sound like they were recorded in 1973 as well. <laughs> I, I'm curious. I mean, if your parents were, were musicians and they decided to give up and pursue these very sensible careers and then... You know, yeah. as soon as you got into pop and rock, it felt like a big rebellion. And then you dropped out of university. Were your parents quite sort of disapproving at, at you and your brother as well, sort of pursuing this musical life? Yeah, I don't think they thought much of it. My dad used to call it na-na-na music <laughs> because I used to just play the same two chords and go na-na-na-na-na, <laughs> you know, and sing like that. Kind of just improing you know, scat singing. We weren't doing it in a, I now realise, in a serious way where you try and construct a song and add bits and work on a song over a, over a period of time. I'm just reading the Paul McCartney lyrics books at the moment. Oh, yeah, me too. It's quite interesting how aware of the construction he is and how adding this bit and then putting an intro on takes you in a different direction. And, and then I, I read that Dylan book as well, where he, in his early days, just learnt all of the other people's songs before mm-hmm. he started writing. We were a bit arrogant, I think, would be the right word. I did, we didn't, you know, I just thought I'll do this and I won't actually be harsh on myself and do the edit. Mm-hmm. That yeah. bit doesn't work. That's a bad line. I'll go back to that one later and, you know, improve the middle eight or whatever. It, mm-hmm. I think it was a bit lazy. I think a lot of the time, um, people who start writing songs, the starting's quite easy, but it's the following through and finishing is so hard. And when you when you watch, I've recently watched the the Beatles get back. Oh, I haven't uh, seen that yet. Oh, yeah, you're in for an absolute treat. I, just hearing you talk about that, I know you're going to love it. It's oh. one of those things where you can see them. Like they've got some songs that are kind of halfway there and they start jamming them out and you can, you know, they try them different ways and stuff. And you, that kind of feels like what But then other times, you know, that there's real craftsmanship and honing things down and trying Don't Let Me Down for the 150th time in a slightly different way and all that sort of stuff. Yeah. And you can see yeah. they did a lot of work, I mean, but they kept a lot of joy in what they did. And it was a really... Yeah, it was a real privilege to watch. Oh, I can't actually. wait I to see that. It. Sounds great. Mm. I learnt a lot uh, on that in the, in the musical theatre as well. Actually, having been in original productions of qu- quite a lot of shows with mm. the with the writers there, a different level here. But to see them rewriting, even if the show's been done in America already, they had to, you know, completely rewrite, completely reshape songs again and again in shows like Wicked. Yeah. Or, or, or Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, Hairspray. I, I've been writing a musical 
with um, Hannah Jane Fox, who was in We Were Rock You with me. Mm-hmm. I'm writing the script and sort of helping with the lyrics and the music. We've done God knows how many drafts. Mm. But, the, but the way you can transform some of those songs, say, oh, no, that one now sounds depressing if we put it <laughs> at the beginning. Why don't we try that one in waltz time? Because the plastic surgeon, you know, it doesn't sound good if it sounds like it's from Rocky Horror. If we tried him once time because he's the devil, we can we he can be more evil, and you, mm. we just keep going through permutations of these songs until we, you hit the you hit the spot with it and, it, and it does what it's meant to do. You have and to give us a hint about what this musical is about. I'm a huge <laughs> musical theatre nerd, and this just sounds delicious. Oh, are you? <laughs> yeah. Oh, it's it's um it's it's called She Devil. Ooh. And it's based on the famous Faye Weldon book, She-Devil. Oh, yeah. Um, we've updated it to nowadays, because that's set in the early 80s. Mm. Mm. And it's a woman who, um, whose husband goes off with Mary Fisher, who's like what would now be an influencer, a sort <laughs> of the, the, the iconic woman goes off with, with one of them. Ruth, the the woman whose husband goes off, uh, used to idolise this woman and try and be like her. He goes off and she does an unusual thing. She summons the devil um, <laughs> and decides that she's she's fed up with being, trying to please anyone, and she's just going to destroy everything. It's not just to get her ba- husband back. And she manages to, dis- well, I won't tell you the whole plot, but through extensive plastic surgery, she managed to destroy Mary Fisher, destroy her husband, destroy most of patriarchal society, mm-hmm. as you do, as you say. <laughs> and, if we could, um, yeah. And turn herself into Mary Fisher. So she looks, through plastic surgery, Ooh. exactly like that other woman. But does it make her happy? That's well. what we want. <laughs> That's what we're investigating. <laughs> great, great thing to base a, a musical on. Yeah. I have to say, looking through uh, your Wikipedia and stuff, um, I mean, you really have done a lot of stage work. I mean, and especially those stage musicals, you need a lot of chops to do that. I mean, that's really hard work, not just to get to the standard that a Western musical needs to be just to even open the doors, but also to keep doing that night after night after night. I mean, that is hard work, and you've really put in the hours there, haven't you? I have, yes, actually. They, they, um, you put your finger on it. With, it's the repetition that, mm. that is the test. You can, it's a marathon. You can train yourself and work up to an event, and that's exciting, and you get the adrenaline. You know, I mustn't eat this, I must sleep then, and you do all that. But when you've got, then got to do that eight times a week for two yeah. years, <laughs> the, it, it becomes a different beast you're dealing with. It becomes a sort of fighting boredom, uh, a f- sort of out-of-body experiences of, <laughs> you know, haven't we done this bit? Where are we? Who am I? Uh, kind of experiences... <laughs> And your body is just doing it. Yeah. But such a strange juxtaposition of like boredom and like you say, sort of knowing it inside out, but then the incredible physical energy and exertion that it takes to do it over and over again. Like what a strange thing for a human being (laughs) to be doing every day. It's very, it is very joyful. I mean, I put the negative side, but you really, end of the day, you feel you, yeah, I, I, I deserve being paid. I've done a great <laughs> work here. You know, I've that. It's really satisfying to think 
yeah, I'm sweat. All my clothes are absolutely <laughs> soaking with sweat, and you know, I really, I really worked the bollocks off there. Yeah. You know, yeah. it is satisfying. Should we dig into your first phonographic memory then? Oh, go um, on. Because Eamon and I were, were just talking before you came on the line about how much we both love madness, and you've chosen House oh, yeah. of Fun. Talk to us about this one and why you picked it. Well, lots and lots of reasons. I mean, uh, the first one being just they played the young ones and there's been a lot of photos going around recently showing us rehearsing with them some strange photos because they're all sitting looking bored at the back (laughs) me and rick are looking a bit sort of puzzled and sad at the front and it put me in mind and i found i knew the lyric is incredible without learning something you find you know the lyrics i found the house of fun i could just recite not all the (laughs) lyrics but but most of it just off the top of my head and I'm a I'm a huge madness fan and I supported them once oh, wow. at the Lyceum in the in the sort of eight, late 80s early 90s there was a fashion for hiring comedians rather than a support band it was cheaper I suppose mm. and I did a Neil I don't know what I did half an hour or something and then <laughs> I thought oh I've got to go home I'll just wait once they start doing the the sort of bore, the, the non-hit songs, you know, that they're going to be yeah. filling in the gig with, I'll go home. And I never went home because there aren't any non-hit songs. They yeah, just don't totally. have any. Exactly. It was incredible. We were sitting at the side of the stage, standing at the side, thinking, what, which one's next? And you think, oh, this one, of course. <laughs> oh, amazing. It's particularly as a lyric writer myself, the, the lyrics, they create this sound. And then the, the, the lyrics are coming from a, a completely different narrative place from well any anybody else I can think of. <laughs> their greatest hits album it ranks for me with with any of the greatest hits albums of any of the greats that have been because like you say song after song after song hit after hit after hit they just churned them out all the way through the 80s i was saying to um deb before we came on air you know for me they're up there with the smiths and the specials an album like rise and fall is one of the great 80s english you know records that's ever been made but they seem to get this kind of low rating amongst the the, the beard scratching know-it-alls. Do you know what I mean? Because they? because they were well, know. because they were funny. Do you know what I mean? Because they they oh, had well, the sense of humour coming yeah, through. And that's that another thing I particularly like about them. Me too. Yeah, definitely. But uh, I'm in the Smiths and the Specials. I would, in my um, 
uh, register, whatever you call it, uh, mm. you know, they come quite a way lower down the madness for, mm. for me. Yeah, I think they definitely deserve more props than they get. I I'm have scratching say. my beard, as I say. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm scratching mine, Joe. That's you what this are podcast too, is all about. If I had a beard, I'd be scratching mine. <laughs> Do you, uh, what, what was it like opening up for Madness? Because I've been to Madness gigs and they're quite roughy-tufty down the front. It, yeah, as, as I remember it, it wasn't, it wasn't too bad. They were into it. They got it because it was mm. comedy. We were, we were big at the time. I mean, Neil particularly was really... Yeah. You know, big for those kind of gig audiences. It's quite tough playing a crowd who are waiting for yeah, somebody that's else what I was thinking, yeah. who've not come for you, for your jokes. Um, but by then I had been doing tours as Neil in a one-man show. At one point I even played the Hammersmith Apollo mm. and I got them to put across the front, you know where you've got the big white sign, mm. I got them to put Neil's Farwell Gog um, <laughs> oops, I spelt that bit wrong. Please don't print this bit. <laughs> it said that right across the front of the Hammersmith Apollo. Tremendous. <laughs> Tremendous. Which a good laugh. House of Fun was, uh, was a really great moment for Madness fans because I think they'd had this consistent run of top 40 hits, but that was the one that went in at number one, wasn't it? That was the one where suddenly they, right? they, they got know. their payback and it became oh, one of those moments where, you know, you, you you could sit and watch Top of the Pops and know it was going to come on at the end. It was great. It's such a brilliant idea as well to write a song from the POV of a 16-year-old boy going into a chemist to try and buy some, <laughs> some Durex for the first time. Who would think that that would make a good song? It's, yeah. it's, that's what's so brilliant about it. They, they just weren't derivative in any way. There was no one else really compared right. to them lyrically, musically, performance-wise. What was it like having them on the on the programme? Because you guys had some amazing bands on, on yes. the other ones. I mean, really important bands mm. that totally yeah. set the scene for the 80s. We also had Unit 4 Plus 2. <laughs> <laughs> Concrete and Clay, that was their big one, wasn't it? Concrete and Clay, yeah. yeah. And we had... Amazuli. Amazulu. <laughs> Rip Brigand Panic. Uh, they were the one. Oh, dear. They, they <laughs> I loved that performance. I loved them. I loved their, their, their music and I loved their performance and everything, but they, they weren't the best behaved. Really? really? Oh, I like it. That's Funnily enough, the, the best behaved band were Motorhead. I knew wow. you'd say that because them pros, pros, you know, Motorhead yeah. played yeah. every night for like, 20 years, never messed up, always got the yeah. gig done. <laughs> of course they were going to bang it out. They knew where the cameras were. They, they, were the, they were the best behaved, really. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I love that episode. Who, who was in charge of... Did, did you guys have a say in the bands that were on the programme? Um, mildly. I think we were going, oh, yes, that. Yes, that would be great. But basically, Paul Jackson was producing, and he had been producer of Top of the Pops at one point, I think. When you when you think about uh, Neil and that whole era where it just became so massive, and and you've done so many things, I was looking at your Wikipedia, like I say earlier today, and, and you have had a very busy life. Obviously, Neil became such a part of the consciousness of the whole country. Uh, we were talking to Ashley Beadle the other day. And there's a particular track that he made called uh, New Jersey Deep, and he referred to it as his happy albatross in that wherever he went, <laughs> this massive albatross would be round his neck. But he couldn't think badly of it because, you know, 
it, it brought a lot of joy. I mean, how do you feel about that whole association now? Because it was so big at the time. Yeah, I think that's quite a good expression, happy albatross. Yeah, I, I, I'd go with that. It's important to me what, that, that Neil was in the show that I did with Peter Richardson called Rank at the Roundhouse, about, when would it have been? You know, six years before The Young Ones. So Neil was, was already an item and he was the, the sort of centre point for Peter Richardson and my double act, The Outer Limits. Mm. We used to do him on stage so at the Comedy Store and at the Comic Strip. And so by the time it came to The Young Ones, he was already my sort of alter ego. Mm. So it, I think it would have been harder to take the albatross aspect of it, had it not been my own fault. Yeah, it is. You you've grown I mean. it, if, I, yeah. if it had been an acting job that I yeah. had auditioned for and then gone in and had to learn it, and then suddenly nobody will employ me as anything else, as it were, rather like, I think, Harry H. Corbett, who played Steptoe, mm. yeah. had, had a, quite a, you know sad time of it because he had been the Shakespearean actor of his generation then he got this sitcom and that was it really but I've only got myself to blame I, I, the idea of Neil comes from my own psyche and and so it's like my kid as it were so his, you can't yeah. resent his success because he's grown up yes. <laughs> and, and, and he's been very successful so I'm proud of him you know yeah, that's great. That's a, that's a really nice thing to hear, actually, because uh, I think especially, as you say, if if it's a part, it's just a part you show up and do and then you get stuck with it. That must be soul destroying. But if it comes from you and that I mean, that's interesting for me, because even as a fan of the show, I wasn't really aware that it was a character that existed beforehand. You know, because you expect uh, when a, a show goes on on television that some writers come up with all of this in the studio. We're, we're all of the parts that, uh, around before, do you know? Uh, yes. I mean, it, it, yeah. we were all performing together at the comic strip. Uh, Alexi was the um, MC. Mm. Yeah. Um, Rick and Aid were a double act um, called 20th Century Coyote, later to be <laughs> the Dangerous Brothers. The Dangerous Brothers. <laughs> and... Um, myself and Peter Richardson were um, the Outer Limits, <clears throat> which included uh, lots of sketches, but Neil was uh, was one of them. Me and Rick particularly were saying we we don't want to we're not gr the greatest of stand-ups. We're character players. We thought we need a sitcom, but we need a not just a boring old sitcom. We need a sitcom that allows sketches and things and strange things to happen. And Rick. And Lisa Mayer and Ben Elton, who they knew, Rick and Aid knew from Manchester University, came up with the idea of the young ones. So they were script writing four hour acts. Ah, oh, makes a lot of sense. Um, yeah, they, and they wrote it for our acts. Let's talk a little bit about your second uh, selection here, because uh, this is one of my favourites, certainly. Um, the Staple Singers and Respect Yourself. Now, I love a bit oh, of gospel, yeah. and what a tune this is. Mm -hmm. yeah. Anytime I hear it, from the very first note, you know what's coming. And it, it's does, just, it does the trick. And, and yeah. then if you... From the first note, it does the trick. And then there's a bit about a minute and something in where suddenly, instead of Pops Staples singing, which has been pretty inspiring as it is, suddenly you've got Mavis Staples. Mm. 
and it, your my skin even went tingly as just, I said that because the, when she yeah. comes in, it, it I just challenge anyone not to feel inspired by her voice when she comes in. You just think, ah, right, I'm going to. There's more. I could give more. You know what I mean? Mm. It's <laughs> it's it's incredibly inspirational. first heard it I dropped out of university I was pretty low I was imbibing the wrong sort of things uh, really lost in direction and out of my head to be honest um, and a friend of mine put that on in a room full of people because he was always trying to get come on everybody get up we got to this is pathetic we've got to get up and mm. we've got to have some funk stop lying around like a load of hippies mm. and he put that on, and it was... It's silly to say nothing was ever the same again, but it, it, it changed my attitude completely. Mm. But what the, what the hell is this? You mean music could do that instead? Mm. We don't have mm. to be... It uh, doesn't have to all about, you know, be about a, a depression that I had kind of half an hour ago. <laughs> you know, uh, as Neil was saying, it, it, you throw it off and it... And this guy went on to play for Gino Washington, and wow. he was he was a local guy I knew. He was into Funkadelica, Sly and the Family Stone. He introduced me to Graham Central Station, which is an offshoot of, yeah, of Sly yeah. and the Family Stone. And um, he ended up, strangely enough, being the one with hair in Right Said Fred. <laughs> didn't see that one coming <laughs> no I bet you didn't because um, he's an amazing uh, funk guitarist I mean he was like beyond all he, he introduced us all the whole generation of us to music that was going to you know get you off your ass and mm. make you alive again and, he, and then I didn't see him for years until I saw him on, on top of the pops and on the back row He's not one of the two singers, the two brothers. Yeah. But he was the he he was the third member of, of Right Said Fred. Rob Manzoli. Mm. That was his, that's yeah. his name. It's so important those friends that, that bring in things from out of your experience into your, your friendship group when you're growing up. And then I went to see the Staple Singers, nineteen seventy four. Did you? Wow. At the Festival Hall they played. 
I was a, I was a big fan. Have you seen the the Summer of Soul uh, video that's just come out? Which uh, this uh, they call it the Black Woodstock. And the footage has been lost for years, and that Questlove has uh, tarted it all up and put it into a full feature film documentary. It's absolutely wonderful. And no, there's a I bit. Even heard of that? Oh, mate, you love good. you'll love it. There's a bit where Mavis Staples gets the chance to sing with Mahila Jackson on stage, and Mavis Staples is just you know crying with nerves, kind of thing. And then they both sing this beautiful gospel track. It properly brought me to tears, and it's not often. Just, you know, a new piece of music you haven't heard before or seen before just straight cuts through. And I think that's the, the amazing thing about gospel, especially, is there's so much belief and love in mm. what, they, what they're what they singing about. Mm. Is, is mm. They're not just going, oh, I met the girl last week. She was very nice. La, 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 la music, like your dad would say. Um, yeah, yeah. But, but there's real truth and, and love in it. And it makes it so powerful, don't you think? Yeah. And and pain and experience mm. oh, I don't know that pop staples was so cool as well that's what impressed me <laughs> he, he he was guitar in his sort of uh, maroon suit and at the time if you wanted to be guitar and sing you had to kind of shout and scream and draw attention to yourself yeah and he was just calm and and yet he had this the beat obviously uh, but he was so calm and relaxed, and then his daughters come out and rip mm. your head off. It's <laughs> just, uh, yeah, they were they were incredible, actually. You've been uh, talking about some some great acts here, and a lot of uh, very musical acts. And indeed, we we touched on your musical theatre career, which, as I said, takes a lot of chops and a lot of lot of hard work to get through that. And um, I'd never heard any of your music before. I'm sorry to say, Nigel, but. Um, your last track that you've chosen is called City in the Summer by Your Good Self. And yeah. what a lovely, beautiful, accomplished piece of music it is. It kind of blew me away. I wasn't expecting that. Oh, well, that's very nice of you to say. It, it, it grew out of the project uh, I was talking about where I revisited all those uh, songs that I wrote in, when I was 18. During the lockdown, uh, I'd picked up my old broken guitar and put out something called Five Songs Left, after Nick Drake, um, mm -hmm. of five of those songs. Then I remembered another four, so I did those, with, with a guy who's in Leeds called Chris Wade, who's who's a band called Dodson and Fogg, uh, but he is Dodson and Fogg. He was doing guitars on it and harmonies, and sometimes he'd take lead vocal. And we'd, uh, we did four songs more, like songs that are over 40 years old. Mm. Um, and some of them hold up, some of them are a bit, you know, it's quite innocent innocent stuff but that put me back into uh, playing and I remembered a tune uh, this is during the first lockdown in the summer of the first lockdown I remember a tune I'd written years before and I was walking around this area and it was a very hot summer and people had been locked down for a, a, a long time for months and you could feel the atmosphere was about to blow. It's, like, there was a murder up the road in the police cordon, and the little signs on the lampposts, you know, when somebody's, somebody's been killed or, you know, mm. the little memorial on a lamppost. And people were leaning out of their windows because it was so hot. And I, I can't even remember, we were only allowed to meet 
two people outside and there wasn't anywhere to go outside anyway in this part mm. of London. So it, it felt hot. I mean, it didn't just feel hot, it was. It was, it up, was to, yeah. up to 40 degrees or something that summer. So the tune and the song came back together again. I just recorded a rough, rough version on, on my crappy guitar and sent it to Andrew Holdsworth. He's brilliant. I mean, he's a, he's a brilliant um, player and, and sort of arranger and, and producer. He plays all the instruments on it, except for the trumpet, and the trumpet uh, solo is played by Tom Walsh. Again, this was all done long distance. I hope I've got the structure right, because the, the, the brilliant saxophone only really appears towards the end, but, it, but it's a nice play out. <laughs> It's an interesting thing, you know, that you can start off all those years ago, 50 years ago nearly, um, you know, write a song being who you were then in the world that you're in then and then kind of have it drift away for all that time, like four or five decades, and then pull it out again. I mean, what? how does how do you feel looking back at the you that wrote that and, uh, and how do you feel interpreting that for the you that you are now, if that's not too weird a question? <laughs> It feels good. <laughs> well, what can I say? It's pretty. Uh, it's a, It's a, it, I think it's only courtesy of the fact that everything got closed down that there was suddenly nothing to do. And you know, you you could you weren't allowed out. You had to in the lockdowns. And so what started to happen is I started to remember things. There was a silent place in your mind and in my mind, and and so. All of these, all of this stuff started returning, which was, yeah, it was quite exciting. And tell us about your book as well, because like we were saying at the beginning, this has been obviously quite a creatively prolific period for you. And now you've got this book that you've, that you're releasing as well. The book's called Jeremiah Born in Time. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's a, a project I've been working on in one shape or form for some while. But again, the, 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 um, the last year allowed me the time to finish it. An interesting publisher called Unbound. Um, it's a crowdfunding publisher. Uh, started up by a guy called John Mitchinson, who is, was the creator of QI on television. Oh. I think today I'm at 55% funded. I well, think. Listen, Nigel. You've you've got you've got all ears on you now. So if you want to <laughs> you, you give your link out there, we'd be quite happy oh, to uh, plug to the old book. Yes, it's yeah. un, on unbound dot com, and it's called Jeremiah Born in Time, and it, it's it's a interesting, it's a fun story. It's a comedy, um, sci-fi, 
um, time travel, sort of steampunk history. It's difficult to describe entirely. I'm not very good with genres, so I put them all in. Yeah, Um, that's the best way, best way. It's kind of somewhere between a Terry Pratchett type thing and a Blackadder type thing. Sounds amazing. So it's it's a guy who can time travel, but not in space, only in time. He doesn't know he can do it. He's inherited it from his mum, who is a fugitive from the future, where they can (laughs) all do it. And the way they travel is through um, inherited memory. Mm. Um, so like, it's something called morphic resonance. Um, you know, why do birds fly south? How do they know to? Do they remember it f- from genetically, genetic memory? Mm. Does that exist? So um, I'd imagined that in the future people have mastered that. And um, he's inherited it. It's quite. It, it's an exciting adventure story. Get to it. What goes around? Sounds army. like an epic. Yeah, absolutely. And it's we look forward fun, to the, yeah. to more music from you and that musical as well, which sounds incredible. And because musical theatre does have a bit of a bad name for being uh, in this country, at any rate, for being s- slightly shallow, you know, and silly music and mm. stuff. But certainly, She Devil is not that. I'm leading the campaign against people saying musicals are silly. So oh, good. Yeah. Going to be in the front yeah. row. Yeah. <laughs> some of them, some of them really aren't like Chicago that I was in, mm-hmm. uh, in in the original London production of that. The 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 Kandra and Ebb music. Some of those songs are incredible. Absolutely. Really, really good songs. Subject matter in a lot of musicals is really dark. I think people don't tend to acknowledge that. Even some of the most popular common musicals, you know, West Side Story, for example, is unbelievably dark. Yeah. Anyway, don't get me started on this subject because we'll be here all day. <laughs> you never shut up. But exactly. But Nigel Planer, mm. thank you so, so much for speaking to us. It's been such a joy digging into your phonographic well, thank memories. thank you. Thanks very much for, for, for having me. It's a pleasure. Oh, it's an absolute pleasure, Nigel. Thank you so much for coming on. City in the summer This town's completely shut down Nothing in the streets on the pavements And the heat's like a weight on the ground Well, I hope you enjoyed that episode of What Goes Around and we'd like to thank you from the very bottom of our hearts for listening to us and sharing us and telling other people about us because that is the only way our beloved little podcast will grow. So if you possibly can, give us a retweet, give us a repost. We really appreciate all those people who do most of them week in, week out. And without you guys, I don't think half of our listeners would ever have heard of us. So please keep it up and keep spreading the gospel of what goes around. City in the summer